Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast, your channel for the latest alumni stories in Boston and beyond. In this show, we'll catch up with Northeastern alumni who are out there achieving what's next. If sports journalism makes you think of box scores and game recaps, you're only scratching the surface. Kate Kritschko is a freelance writer, editor, and photojournalist who travels the world and chases stories at the intersection of sports, history, and culture. Hi, Cade. Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast. Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me. So you are a freelance writer and photojournalist, and you're published in the New York Times, Vice, Men's Journal, ESPN, and so many more places. Before we get into some of these stories that you've covered, can you give us a brief summary of what you've been up to since Northeastern? Yeah, you, you covered a bit of it. I'm a freelance writer and photojournalist. I'm actually an editor now as well for the Ski Journal, which is a international internationally distributed ski magazine based out of Bellingham, Washington. For the most part, yeah, I'm, I'm traveling and, and chasing stories uh, around the world, uh, which is pretty crazy to say, looking back on, on everything, but that is what I'm doing for a living right now. So what inspired um, you to pursue journalism? So you studied it at Northeastern, I'm assuming, yeah. but I think everyone takes a different path after that major. So what inspired you to pursue journalism in a more travel kind of freelance way? You know, I kind of fell into it. I, I had an internship right out of school in California with a, a different outdoors publication, Powder Magazine. And I just from being in house, I realized that I could do the same thing from anywhere. And one thing led to another. And I've we're eight, nine years later, and I'm still able to do it. I've just kept building upon that. And, and now it's what I do. And I'm just writing all the time. I think what I find most interesting when I looked into your writing is that it covers the outdoors industry, travel, sports, and culture, and mm -hmm. the unique intersection of all of those things. And I saw you had a piece about skateboarding in Cuba and history of skiing in China. And a lot of us, well, I, I can speak for myself, I've not heard of those topics. And I'm curious, what have been some of your favorite stories and what interests you to write like through this lens? Uh, I think that sports gets a gets pigeonholed really easily into box scores and, and game recaps. And I grew up a soccer player. Uh, I actually played well. I sat the bench on the Northeastern <laughs> soccer team, but soccer was a huge part of my life. And I would travel everywhere I went with a soccer ball, which my family would make fun of me for. But honestly, that ball opened up a lot of doors for me. It's definitely a I don't want to say like a peace treaty but it's it's a way to open up to a new culture a new place very quickly and I just realized that sports was so embedded and ingrained in in culture and I thought that it was an excellent lens to dive into some of these deeper topics and you mentioned that China story I was basically in western China and saw the conflict between the Uyghur population there and and the central government. But I told that story through skiing, which is not, not a sport that you think of when you think of conflict areas. 
So it's just surprising how many times sports has been able to take me into places that I probably would have never otherwise been able to access. So for a story like that, hmm. how did you come across it? And how did you like, what was your process like in finding that? And then that was the one in the New York Times, correct? Yeah, that was with the New York Times. I was actually over there on a separate reporting trip for Powder Magazine, uh, Ski Magazine. And we were looking at the future of skiing in China and how China had just locked down the 2022 games and the sport was exploding. They'd gone from five ski areas to something like 500 in a matter of years, which is pretty unprecedented growth. And we covered that story, but then we took a detour to Western China, which is supposedly where skiing was created. So there's a small cave painting there that dates back 10,000 years. And we went over to see the cave painting. But when we got there, we realized there was a lot more there. It took us three days by car to get there because we had to go through all these checkpoints. When we finally did reach the government checkpoints, when we finally did reach the cave, it was, it was behind steel bars and it had translations in Chinese, in Mongol and in Kazakh. And I realized that we were in this cradle that had a border drawn there, but didn't necessarily mean that we were in China anymore. We celebrated Kazakh New Year in China. People identified as Mongol, but their passports said they're from China. All of a sudden, this became a much bigger story. And I I took that thread and I, I kept pulling on it and more threads kept appearing. And luckily, the New York Times thought it was an interesting enough story to run with. So we went with it. So that was a pretty wild moment for sure. So as a freelancer, you happen to be there, come across a story. So do you mm -hmm. pitch that to the New York Times? I'm just so curious on that end of, you know, how it works for a freelancer. I cold called the New York Times. <laughs> that is not something that ever works ever. Uh, it's never worked for me again, but <laughs> sometimes you catch someone on the right day. I also did a lot of research and had interacted with another Times correspondent and I emailed him first and asked about how exactly I should go about pitching a story like this. And he pointed me in the right direction, got me connected with the right person. I gave them my pitch and the timing was good. And we went from there. So you kind of have to use every connection you have and, and everything you've done in the past. And it all just builds towards the next project. And that is case in point with the China story. Yeah. Wow. And I think I want to circle back to some of your other travels, but for that you hinted at, the sports industry and and how I know personally I've always thought of it as like covering those games you know the big newspapers how do, how do you define sports journalism and I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts on how during this pandemic time how you might see that changing or how it's really affected the industry I uh, I think that sports journalism kind of as I mentioned earlier is just a much wider field than it's portrayed as. I think that sports are something that, that bind us together, but also divide us. And that's the beauty of it. There's, there's a lot tied up in, in sports. And I mean, you'll see politicians endorsing teams overseas here as well. I mean, you're watching The Last Dance and Barack Obama's on there as Chicago native is his title, but then we know him <laughs> as the ex-president of the United States. It, it touches everything. And and I think it's been especially weird during the current times where we're seeing sports grind to a halt. And for the first time, this force that we've relied on 
isn't around and we're having to adapt in real time. And that includes the journalism world. So a lot of my colleagues are looking back at old games. Some are talking about the future, but as far as current day-to-day stuff, it's it's a strange time to be a sports journalist, mm-hmm. myself included. I, I don't necessarily touch the day-to-day, but even, even these human interest stories have kind of dried up a little bit. I know people are really missing the live sports. A lot of my close friends are are watching The Last Dance, watching old games, just to get any grasp of something in that that world. You realize when you're missing it how important it is to just our world, our society day to day. Like, especially, I mean, I'm located in Boston right now, and obviously our Northeastern Main campus is here in such a big sports city. You feel it. You feel it a lot. Yeah. Where are you located now, actually? I didn't ask. So I'm currently located in Seattle. Uh, I'd spent the last three years in Spain living and working from over there. Another perk of being freelance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw an opportunity to to locate myself in a different country and, and really dive into a different sports culture. And that was an amazing experience. But I came back to Seattle where I've spent off and on the last eight years since graduation. So you wrote another piece. You were in Bilbao, Spain in March when the COVID-19 was hitting Europe and the rest of the world. And you wrote about this experience in Outside Online. Can you tell us what that was like for you and, and how you did decide to return to the U.S. after, you know, being in Europe and kind of traveling around and that's being such a big part of your your job and your norm? Yeah, I mean, we're two months out from from when that all happened. And I think I'm still processing it mm-hmm. a little bit, but I was in Bilbao, which is where I had lived previously. So I was back on a reporting trip, but also seeing friends and and, and people that had surrounded me for, for the past couple of years. And I was reporting a ski story actually in the Picos de Europa, which is, is a, a mountain chain in the North of Spain. When we, we heard one evening, basically, that uh, Trump had announced his the travel restrictions, threw everybody into a panic. Um, I got a bunch of texts from from family and friends saying I needed to get home. I I saw it as a scare tactic on some level, and I was pretty intent on staying over there. I didn't fully understand COVID nineteen and and what was actually happening. A lot of us didn't. No one could really. Exactly. Uh, but my big indicator was the next morning. I walked down into the street and and the streets were empty. And that just doesn't happen in Spain and much of Europe. It's it's so lively in the morning. Everyone's so warm. You're hugging, you're kissing, you're, you're shaking hands. There was none of that. And there were no people. And it didn't feel like Europe. And I, I realized that I something was off and I, I needed to react. And my thought process went to getting back home. My sister just actually had a baby last week so I was thinking of that like I need to make sure I'm back in the U.S. to to see my little niece which ironically now I'm back in the U.S. and I can't travel anyways to see her but at the time again we that was their understanding and we did the best we could and that was for me to get home which yeah was a crazy 36 to 48 hours. I can only imagine what that might have been like because you know, I think Europe, it was like just slightly ahead of where we are now. And everyone was just kind of reacting as we could. We No one knew how to mm-hmm. respond. And our last podcast episode featured an alum who's in 
uh, Ivory Coast, Africa, and she's been living there for a year and she isn't able to get a flight home because they're not doing them right now. So she's kind of just waiting it out. And you think about that international um, perspective of, you know, where you consider home. And even if you are spending time in another country, it's still, Mm -hmm. I think everyone has that tendency to be back with your, your family and your people. And when it is a crisis. Yeah. And and that was a weird thing for me was because I felt like a lot of my people were in Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had this, internal duel with uh, what do I choose you know and uh, ultimately it was my sister that pushed me towards coming back to the U.S. but I was pretty intent on you know sitting it out with my my friends over in in Spain and just seeing what happened Mm -hmm. I'm super lucky because the day after I left they all got locked inside and they were inside for the next 50 some odd days Mm -hmm. their lockdown was very different than what it looks like here Mm -hmm yeah, that would have been me in an Airbnb with with Luis and Elena. Mm-hmm. So you've traveled to some very amazing and remote areas of the world. And I'd like to ask, do you travel to pursue stories? I know you've been on assignments. Do you also travel just for personal interests and find stories when you're there? And, and what kind of excites you about some of these uh, more unique or less traveled places that you've been able to visit? I think there's a bit of a balance between being sent a place and then also just pursuing a story on my own. I wish it was just me being sent a place all the time, mm-hmm. but I'm at the point in my career where while that does happen, a lot of times I will find an idea that I, I'm really passionate about and I really believe in that publications don't quite see it that way. And that has to be okay, but it doesn't mean that the story has to die there. I went to Cuba a year, two years ago now, after pitching a story that I thought was incredible, no one else did. And I went anyway. And I, I, again, found the thread and I pulled on it and it kept growing and and did become the story that I eventually was able to publish post-trip. But I would say that it really depends on the story and you have to, you have to invest in it. If it's something that's worth pursuing don't necessarily take no as your your ultimate answer right Mm -hmm. and then as far as these far-flung places again I'm not trying to necessarily seek out the weirdest place and and do a story just for the sake of going to Kyrgyzstan to do a story on Kyrgyzstan I am just looking for a story and and they just tend to keep popping up in those places and other people might not be chasing them and I, I think that I can Mm-hmm. So you just have to always have your mind open to, to things dropping on your plate and, and saying yes to them. What has been one of your favorite places that you've been? And that's probably a hard question to answer. Yeah, it, yeah, it kind of is. But uh, I really enjoyed Colombia. Mm-hmm. I went down there for the 2014 World Cup, again, on a hunch, uh, all my journalist friends that were more established than me got assignments in Brazil which is where the World Cup was and so I went to a country that was in the World Cup but wasn't hosting the World Mm -hmm. Cup and I I researched the histories of these teams and and which teams had the most to lose or gain and and Colombia had this really tragic World Cup history uh, that they covered for in a 30 for 30 documentary actually and this was 20 years after that really tragic exit from the world cup and i thought it would be like poetic to be there and and see what that looked like so 
I went down there with a photographer friend and and we watched the World Cup from there and it was an incredible experience. The country itself is amazing. The people are incredibly friendly, super interesting, very engaging. And there's just so much recent history there that is fascinating. Uh, this is pre-Narcos and all of the shows coming out on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So I have my own bones to pick with that show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I got to learn a lot of that history firsthand, which was really cool. That's amazing. And those are still people that I talk to today, you know, so. So you mentioned journalism and always you travel with a photographer and, and mm. you are also a photojournalist and photography is such a big part about telling stories. And I saw on your website, you have really beautiful photos. They're just so, I love the candids that capture these authentic moments. And for any of us who've taken like a point and shoot camera on a trip, know how difficult it is to actually capture what you might see in your head. So how did you get into the photo side as, you know, a writer? And what, what do you look for when you're trying to capture those images? Well, first off, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I appreciate it. I got into photography just kind of fooling around with the camera at Northeastern. Uh, but when I really started taking it seriously was I did a dialogue with Andrea Rayner and, and Louise Brenz, uh, two photography teachers at Northeastern and we went to Cuba. And I quickly realized that I couldn't turn off my journalism brain and my story brain. And I started to find out that my pictures really emulated the way that I observed the world and approached my stories. So there are certain subtleties that you can pick up. Like you said, these candid moments that you can pick up with a camera that we try to do with words, but sometimes it, we just can't do it justice. So in Cuba, there's the way that the teenagers there hold their hands. Like when they're nervous, they put one arm straight down and then another arm bent behind their back holding from the elbow. And it's this really strange, small thing. But when you see that image, for me at least, I'm like, oh, that's Cuba. That's crazy. In Spain, the old people, when they come back from the market, they'll each carry one one handle of the the grocery bag so you'll have one person on one side one on the other and it's the cutest thing ever but <laughs> it also it puts you in spain mm -hmm. and you see these things in china the way they smoke a cigarette it's just these small things that are very different but have a sense of place to them that i think photography is an incredible way to capture that that's amazing uh i i know it's we can't travel right now but when i talk about travel with people just makes me want to go I more. <laughs> I know, it's not fair. <laughs> it really isn't. So you were also the editor for Northeastern's School of Journalism Game Plan, which is an online mm. sports journal that, quote, dives into the methods, tools, and motivations behind today's most innovative sports coverage. <laughs> I pulled that from the website. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit more about what readers would find in Game Plan and kind of how you got involved with that project? Yeah, the game plan project has been really interesting. Uh, what we're trying to do there is basically create a Neiman lab for sports journalism, uh, which the Neiman lab basically takes the pulse of the journalism world, all of the journalism world, and they operate through Harvard. Uh, we are doing something similar, but with sports journalism and looking at how some of these big stories come together, uh, who's, who's putting them together, what the future of our industry looks like as far as are we 
adopting new technology? Are we telling stories through numbers? Are we using illustration in place of photography? How are we, especially during COVID times, how are we putting out magazines without being able to go into the office? Uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in the industry and not a lot of people talking about it. So I talked with some people at Northeastern, including Chuck Fountain and Alessi Bajak in the journalism department. And we cooked up this idea to attack that sector basically and, and make it our own. And, and that's what we've been doing. And it's been really, really fun. It's, it's a completely different outlet for me. And, and I'm stretching my brain every day to, to figure it out, but it's been great. So do students write for that publication? Yeah. Another great part of it is that it's completely student powered. Uh, I, I oversee it, but I'm talking with students every day and helping them with their pitches. And the greatest part about game plan is that it's really a platform for students to connect with industry leaders. We have undergrads that are talking with the editor of Sports Illustrated. We have grad students that are brainstorming with producers at 30 for 30. This is stuff that I wish I had in school, but the connection base that we have is is pretty phenomenal. And I'm hoping that people can use this as a springboard to really get involved in the industry right from the get-go. So far, the response from the journalist side has been phenomenal. The industry sees a need for it. And I think what we're doing, I think we might be ahead of the curve on it. But as soon as people catch up, I think they're going to realize what a great platform we've got. That's awesome. I think that's experience is invaluable for journalism students. Because I think a lot of the university that I came from, we had the the paper, the campus paper, but that's only mm-hmm. one thing. A lot of people don't go and write for traditional papers. Papers look a lot different now as they as they change every year. So I think that's really cool that yeah. it innovates with the industry. And then Northeastern students are all it's all about that hands on learning experience. Yeah, it seems to be like, like right in tune with the Northeastern mission. And it was just supernatural the way it came about and and the way it's continued. So I hope that we can grow it and I hope we can get a couple more people behind it and and that we can really tap into the potential that we've got. So uh, we have time for one more question. And because this is the Northeastern Next podcast, um, I always ask, what's next for you? I know we're in this pandemic right now. A lot of things might be on hold, especially in terms of your travel. But what have you been up to right now? And what kind of goals do you have looking forward? I'm really trying to make the the magazine jump as, as an editor. I'm, I'm trying to make sure that that looks clean and that we're putting out some good copy for the, the coming year. From a personal standpoint, I'd really like to move more into the documentary world. Mm. I think that we talked about photography and we talked about writing. We're missing the video. Mm-hmm. And I've got the stories. I, I've, I know how to put them together and I do know how to work a camera and I work with a bunch of production teams as a writer, but I'd like to get more into producing and, and directing and been working on a couple, yeah, documentary projects. So they're temporarily on hold. That's why I was in Spain. I was doing a bunch of pre-research and getting everything in order. And we had our meetings all set and those kind of fell off the table, mm-hmm. but the story doesn't die, you know? So when we can, we will. And I think that's what's next for me. So 
keep an eye out. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I love talking to you and hearing more about your story. And I, we hope to keep an eye on what you're writing next when we're able to, when the world opens again, I should say. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll be here writing away. Thanks for listening. The goal of this show is to tell stories, hear different perspectives from voices around the world, career triumphs and career struggles, all in the pursuit of what's next. You can find Cade's writing and photography on his website, cadekritchko.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a rating and review. This is Megan Kirkbrisson from the Office of Alumni Relations. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.